0: well, good evening and uh, welcome uh, to our Bible study. Thank you for coming out tonight or for tuning in online. Um, if you have a Bible, if you could open it to uh, Ruth chapter four, that's where we'll be up to tonight. And uh, last week in our study, we left um, with a bit of a cliffhanger moment. Uh, Ruth, under the direction of Naomi, had uh, risked it all and had sought out Boaz, and declaring her desire for him to be that the kinsman redeemer. I remember, there was a bit of you know, weird things going on that I recommended that you don't do it, okay, it's just just written for us, it's not to be practiced, and I hope you listen to my counsel, if you're laid on people's feet this week, oof, that wouldn't be good, but if you remember, Ruth was met with a problem, okay, Boaz was willing, and that must have been a relief for her, uh, but there was a nearer kinsman, meaning that he had a greater obligation, And this was not Boaz uh, palming off the responsibility, but rather this is the process. The closer the relative, they had the initial responsibility, and they must decide what they're going to do. But Boaz promised Ruth that he would follow this through, and either this nearer kinsman or Boaz himself would fulfill the duty. But the question is, who would it be? Would Ruth get to marry Boaz, or would it be this other unnamed kinsman. And this is where the final scene of chapter 3 leaves us and that's the tension as we move into chapter 4. And I want us to remember that this is a real story, okay? Real people in a real place, okay? So, so there is tension for those involved. Imagine being Ruth. Okay, you are going to get married. It's going to happen very soon, but you're not sure as to who you will be marrying. That would be interesting. Uh, It could be Boaz, or it could be this other relative. It must have been quite an anxious wait. Now, we are told where Ruth was during the unfolding events of this fourth chapter. Uh, The close of chapter three seems to indicate she was at home waiting, but perhaps her and Naomi were anxious onlookers at the city gates. But wherever she was, this is a crucial moment. And it all comes down to this. Who would choose Ruth? Okay, and this is the focus of this fourth chapter so tonight our text is the first are 12 verses and i'd like uh, to read them uh, together now so ruth chapter four and i will read from verse one the word of god says then went boaz up to the gate and sat him down there and behold the kinsman of whom boaz spake came by and to whom he said ho such a one turn aside sit down here And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it then tell me that i may know for there is none to redeem it beside thee and i am after thee and he said i will redeem it then said boaz what day thou buyest the field of the hand of naomi thou must buy it also of ruth the mobile the wife of the dead to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance and the kinsman said i cannot redeem it for myself Lest I mar mine own inheritance, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel, concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to conform all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders, and unto all the people, ye are witnesses this day that I have brought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Marlon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Molbides, the wife of Marlon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate, and the elders, said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house, like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worship in Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamar bear unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Amen. Now let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this night uh, that you've given to us thank you for the opportunity uh, that you've granted us to study your word and i do ask that uh, you would help me uh, as a teacher help me to speak clearly and coherently help me to explain the text accurately and uh, lord i do ask that you would help us to understand uh, both the meaning uh, and the relevance of this portion of scripture and help us to grow uh, in our love and adoration of you for we ask this in jesus name amen have you ever had a moment uh, in your life where it all came down to one decision, and yet it wasn't yours to make? Okay, it would have massive ramifications on your life, but the decision was going to be made by someone else. You've dreamt about a certain job your whole life, uh, you diligently studied, you worked so hard, and now it comes down to one decision. Okay, would you get the job or would you not, and the decision is not yours To make someone else makes it for you or perhaps you need a scholarship to get into the course that you so desperately desire you do all that you can but ultimately it's someone else's decision or you need a loan to buy a house you've been looking for a long time and finally you find the house of your dreams it's everything you want but ultimately it's someone else's decision if the loan is approved or not With Harry's condition, the treatment that he's receiving requires special approval. And Emma and I are powerless. His situation is decided by others. They could decide to stop funding his treatment. But imagine this. And this is a little bit hard for us to get our heads around because of the cultural practices of our time. But imagine there are two potential people who you could marry, but it's not your decision. You have no say at all on the outcome. And I'm not sure how one would feel in that kind of situation. Um, I think if you were aware of the options and you had a preference, you would be praying frantically. Lord, please make it this person and and not that one. Um, But it would be quite a bizarre scenario. Your life partner is about to be determined, but it's not your decision to make. And this is the situation that Ruth finds herself in within this fourth chapter. Now, this chapter breaks up in two scenes, verses 1 to 12 and verses 13 to 22. And the first section is all about determining who will marry Ruth, who will be the kinsman redeemer. So, that's the big idea of this first scene, and that will form the big idea of our study. And the approach for tonight, it's very simple. It's just two headings, candidate one, candidate two, who will be the kinsman redeemer and take Ruth in marriage. So let's consider, firstly, candidate number one. Now, as Naomi had predicted at the close of the previous chapter, Boaz immediately got to work. There was no delay. He was a man of his word. He promised Ruth that he would deal with it, and he did. And the way that verse one commences gives us the idea that Boaz went as soon as practically possible, okay? As soon as he could go and take care of this, he did. So we're told in verse one that Boaz went to the gates and he sat down. And again, this is something that doesn't make too much sense to our modern minds, but the gates in an ancient city or town, they were very important locations. Obviously, they stopped intruders getting in, so that was an important function. But at the gates, it was here where business transactions... Would be conducted and also legal cases would be worked through now this description was given by uh, one author i believe this is in your notes the author says city gates in palestine were complex structures with lookout towers at the outside and a series of rooms on either side of the gateway where defenders of the town would be stationed Uh, but these gateways also served a secondary purpose as a gathering place for the citizens of the town and this is where the official administ- administrative and judicial business of the community was conducted. And hence, Boaz arrives at the gates for at least uh, two reasons. Okay, number one, most people would pass through the gates as they headed off to the fields or the threshing floor or making their way to another city. So this was a logical place for him to meet the other kinsmen and to facilitate a speedy settlement. But also, this is where legal transactions took place. And the phrase, sat him down, it tells us that Boaz is ready for business. He wants to make this happen. So it would be like going down to the courthouse today. That's the idea of being at the gates. Now, as Boaz sat at the gates, he spotted the other kinsmen. And the text introduces this with the word, behold. And again, we're meant to see providence with this detail. Okay, so so we need to be careful not to miss the Lord's hand. Okay, this guy, this other kinsman, happens to appear at the gates at this time when he was required. Okay, this is not coincidence. This is the hand of the Lord. And again that's a reminder for us to not miss the providence of God in the small details of our lives. Now no doubt Boaz was very pleased to find this man so quickly. But their initial exchange is somewhat bizarre. Now, I do think that this is not how Boaz spoke to him. Boaz would have known his name. Okay, they were relatives. But rather, the author is making a subtle point. And uh, we'll see that shortly. And the way that the King James translates it is, ho such a one. Okay, And commentators debate this phrase, but it seems to be a poetic device. The two particular Hebrew words actually rhyme, but they make a a meaningless phrase. It doesn't make too much sense, but it's very similar to when we would say helter-skelter or heebie-jeebies or hocus-pocus. And uh, this is actually called, uh, it's called farrago, in which unrelated and perhaps even meaningless rhyming words are combined to produce a new idiom. So that seems to be the sense here. So for us, we would say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come over here. Okay, so that's what I'm going to refer to him as Mr. So-and-so. And the author is very deliberate in making sure he remains unnamed. Okay, so Boaz no doubt knew his name, as I mentioned previously, and I believe he used it, but it's never written here. Okay, why? Well, one of the purposes of withholding his name is that the author is intending to draw attention to Boaz. Okay, he's highlighting his character. And this is very similar to what happened in Ruth chapter 1. If you remember, Orpah is mentioned. And that inclusion is designed to draw attention to Ruth. Orpah served as a foil to heighten the character of Ruth. And this is the idea here. Boaz is certainly in the spotlight. Boaz is viewed favorably. The idea is our respect for Boaz is meant to increase and our respect for the nameless man is to decrease. Now, I do wonder what was going through the mind of Boaz as he called over his friend, Mr. So-and-so. It seems as though Boaz wanted to be the, the kinsman redeemer. He cared for Ruth. So perhaps he was a little nervous about how this conversation would go. And I also wonder, how was Mr. So-and-so thinking? Obviously, he knew Boaz. They were related. Could have he been expecting this conversation? I'm not sure. But it must have quickly become apparent that whatever Boaz wanted to discuss, it it was very important. This was not some trivial manner, because 10 elders of the city were quickly summoned. These elders would function as witnesses, and this stresses that Boaz ensures that the outcomes would be legally valid. These elders would authenticate the civil proceedings that he wished to set in motion. So with the group gathered, they all sat down in in one of the rooms around the gates. This was a common practice. The crowds also gathered, so you can imagine that, people leaving the city and like, hey, there's all the elders and there's Boaz. I wonder what this is about. Nosy people wanting a little bit of gossip to share with everyone. Okay, people haven't changed. And uh, with all the people seated, all eyes are on Boaz. And we expect Boaz to begin talking about Ruth. But it's interesting, he doesn't start there. But rather he commences with the property. And in verse 3, he mentions Naomi and how she had returned from Moab. It seems this would be reasonably well known in a smaller village. And he mentions the selling of the land that belonged to Elimelech. Now, we need to remember that land was crucial. When Israel came into the promised land during the days of Joshua, the land was divided amongst the tribes and then among the family groups. And God intended that the land stay within those tribes and within those family groups. So the land couldn't be permanently sold. And every 50 years, okay, the, the time of Jubilee, it was returned to the original family group. So when the text talks about selling land, it isn't exactly the same as what we think of when we sell land in Australia. Okay? If we were to sell something now, you don't get it back in 50 years' time. Now, there's some debate in, amongst the commentators about exactly what's intended in the text. But what would happen okay, is that when someone would come across financial hardship, they would sell the rights to use their land. Okay, So they don't forfeit the title deeds of the land, so to speak, but they allow someone to use their land and to make profit from it. It works very similar to how adjustment works today with rural properties. Okay, if I was to buy a farm and I wasn't able to use it, okay, someone could pay me, let's say, $1,000 a month and they could put their cattle on my land and they could grow crops on my land and they would keep the profit. Okay, so, so that's what happened in Israel. And in the year of Jubilee, all land would be returned. But a family member could buy the rights of the land back. And it seems that this is what's happening here. And there are a couple of ways to understand this. But it seems likely that the rights to the land had been sold before they moved to the land of Moab. But now since they were back, a near kinsman could purchase the rights to the land back. And this seems to be what Boaz presents to this man, Mr. So-and-so. And in verse 4, he challenges him, you should fulfill the role of the kinsman redeemer. You should buy this land back. But if you don't want to do it, please let me know, because then I will do it. But you need to understand, you are the nearer kinsman, so it's your obligation first. But if you pass on it, I will do it. Okay? That, that's the initial offer that Boaz presents. Now, no doubt, Mr. So-and-so, and he are thinking through this, and his response is recorded at the end of verse 4. He says, I will redeem it. And at this stage, it's like, oh, no, this is not meant to happen. Okay, what, what are you doing? Okay, you're not the hero of the story, Boaz is. Okay, he's happy to take the land. And, you know, this makes sense because he's doing some math in his mind and he's thinking, okay, there's the purchase price. There's a little bit of money to care for Naomi, but the profit margin is still quite high. Okay, this is a smart business decision. And also he's going to look great in society. Hey, I'm the kinsman redeemer. This will give him good publicity as well. So things are looking pretty good for this individual. And no doubt, you know, he starts planning in his mind. How am I gonna pay for this? You know, credit card cash, who knows what they had. You know, he's ready to sign the contract. And we think, okay, what's what's going to happen? You know, but just when we think things are not going to work out, uh, Boaz pipes up. It's like he says, um, just before we sign the contract, there's there's one more thing. Uh, you need to understand it, it's not just land. You also need to take the lady. Okay, it's land and lady. Okay, Ruth, the mole by death. It's a package deal. And I would have loved to see the face of Mr. So and So at this point. His plan is falling to pieces. And what Boaz does is he stresses the importance of the family line. Okay, there was a requirement to raise up the seed for the dead. Okay, this speaking of Elimelech and Marlon. So if one was to acquire the land of Elimelech, he should also rescue the line of Elimelech. It's vital for an Israelite to have an heir living on the family land, okay? That, that was a massive thing for them. And the loss of land and heirs amounted to personal annihilation, and this was the greatest tragedy imaginable. Okay, in the ancient world, one of the most fearful curses was, may your seed perish and your name die out, okay? This was a massive issue. And this was an unexpected plot twist for Mr. So-and-so. He, he wanted the land... Uh, but not the lady. He wanted the corn, but not children. And it seems almost immediately he changes his mind. Okay, he turns and runs quicker than one who has just become a, come across a brown snake. Okay, he's, he's out of there. And verse 6 explains his reasoning. Okay, there, there was too much to lose. The potential cost for him was far too high. He couldn't risk his own land. He, he didn't see the, the sense in paying money for this land, only to give it to a potential son of Ruth. If he had a son with Ruth, the land would then go to him. So it no longer made any sense economically. And there may also be a racial issue in there as well. Remembering Ruth is from Moab. Most Jews had a strong dislike towards those from Moab. So Mr. So-and-so here, he passes the buck. His interest instantly evaporates and he declares before the elders that he cannot redeem her. So, the first candidate declined the opportunity to redeem, and to this day, he is the unnamed man who refused to be the redeemer. But thankfully for Ruth, there was another candidate, and this is our next point, okay, the second candidate. The approach of Boaz has been variously described. Some see it as wise, others view it as quite cunning, maybe even deceitful. I'm not sure why he approached it this way. But what becomes very clear is that he was willing to be the redeemer for both the land and the lady. Okay, he was willing to be the redeemer no matter the cost, even if it didn't make him money. And unlike the first candidate, he seems more concerned about the lady, not the land. He, he's more concerned about the seed, ensuring that Elimelech's okay, seed doesn't die out. So, Boaz was willing to be the Redeemer, and for this to be legally ratified, there was a process. And verse 7 gives us some helpful background information. It explains a custom of the time, and again, it's somewhat strange to our modern minds. Okay, notice verse 7. It says, Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to conform all things. A man plucked off his shoe... And gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. So so there was this custom of removing your shoe and handing it to your neighbor. And what this is, it's a very vivid illustration. You're passing the duty of kinsman redeemer to another. Now I, I don't know if this was practiced in every kind of civil case. What was this in all business deals? I, I'm not sure. But we do see this practiced in Deuteronomy 25. And Deuteronomy 25 explains kinsman redeemer cases. And it is a little bit different compared to our text. Uh, And yet it is instructive. I've got this in your outline for you. Deuteronomy 25. uh, We'll read from verses 5 to 10. And it says, If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child... The wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So there again, we see the importance of the name. Uh, Verse 7. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go to the gate unto the elders. And say, my husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He'll not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, i like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. So although this case uh, is different, uh, we do see some similarities. There's a mention of the gates, there's a mention of the elders, and there's also the practice of the shoe. So this is a custom of the time, and it's mentioned in verse 7 to help us understand what's about to happen. So this is actually a helpful inclusion by the author, so we don't come to this thing they're exchanging shoes. And think, what in the world is that about? Okay, verse 7 helps us to understand that. Okay, so very simply, this exchange of the shoe, it's just like signing a contract today. Uh, and with that custom in mind, okay, let's get back to the narrative. It seems likely that Boaz was quite pleased that the other kinsmen had declined. And we see in verse 8 that the invitation is extended to Boaz. He can buy the land and he can take responsibility for the lady. And hence, at this time, Mr. So-and-so takes off his shoe, which confirms he's prepared to legally hand over his right as the nearest kinsman. And as the shoe ceremony is about to be performed, verses 9 and 10, this is Boaz talking. This reveals the conditions of the contract. This is declaring what he will do. Okay, verse 9, And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chileon's and Marlon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabites, the wife of Marlon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place ye are witnesses this day. So Boaz declares that he will be the kinsman redeemer and he's requesting legal status as the redeemer. That's why the witnesses here are emphasized both at the beginning and at the end. And legal terms are littered throughout this narrative. So Boaz wants it ratified. He wants it legally confirmed that he will purchase the land. Whatever is owed, he will cover but even more than that, he wants to continue the family line. He wants to ensure that the name of Elimelech continues. And since Naomi is okay, too old, okay, this will happen through Ruth. And Boaz declares here that he will take Ruth to be his wife. And the terminology used here is purchase. And that, and that conveys an image in our minds that isn't entirely helpful This isn't buying a wife like a possession, but rather he would redeem her. He would take her legally to be his wife. And with her, the family line will continue. So this is his pledge. And in taking the sandal, taking the shoe, he wants it ratified before the elders and before the crowd. And the text seems to convey that the elders and the crowds, they were thrilled by this outcome okay Boaz is a real hero in this case and the elders quickly confirm okay, that, that they are witnesses that, that they're willing to ratify the agreement and Boaz is now the kinsman redeemer okay he's, he's got the shoe uh, I, I'm not sure if you keep the shoe or if it has to go back I don't know um, you would assume there'd be some kind of contract or agreement exchanged but it was now legally ratified boaz was the official redeemer now what what happened at that point i'm not sure um i've seen a lot of movies so you know i've got the picture of you know ruth and boaz she runs from the crowd and gives him a hug but you know that'd be pretty cute but i'm not sure you know the text doesn't say that so i better not take too much poetic license okay what 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 happened what what was it like you know i don't know what the text tells us there was a threefold blessing pronounced upon boaz and this is contained in verses 11 and 12 okay so blessing one ruth would be like rachel and leah okay so we need to understand that's quite the blessing okay that these ladies they're the matriarchs of israel they're the wives of jacob himself and that they seem to be thinking specifically of fertility that ruth would be fertile and that the house of boaz would be built up and this is requested of the lord okay they ask the lord that he would grant this to them a blessing too is fame for boaz we see this in verse 10 okay so it it includes okay fame And, and that means that he would have a great name that he would be widely known that he would be well respected and then the third blessing is a house like pharez now pharez was the son of tamar and he was conceived in controversial circumstances so this blessing is a little bit unexpected. But this came about, okay, the whole Tamar situation came about because of a failure of a kinsman redeemer. Okay, Tamar had to resort to deception because a kinsman redeemer didn't do what he should have. And it's this connection, okay, that's one of the reasons why it's made here. But this is not a comparison between the characters of Tamar and Ruth, okay, but rather the kinsman redeemer link and also Boaz come from the line of Phares. Okay, that was his family. So this is quite the blessing pronounced upon Boaz. And and this is a really joyful scene. Okay, the elders, the, the crowds, they're happy. People are delighted. People are thrilled. And it's a real drastic change compared to the start of the narrative. Okay, there's, there's a real mood shift. and And this particular scene will only be surpassed by the final scene because in the final scene there is a wedding and there's a baby. Okay, it's a wonderful way to end the story and we'll get to the end of the story next week. For tonight I want to leave you with two thoughts. Okay, a thought from each of the candidates. Okay, a lesson from candidate number 1. Okay, the author intends us to view Mr. so and so negatively. Okay, the fact that he remains anonymous, this is judgment for his refusal to redeem Ruth. And from him, there's a valuable lesson for us to learn. He was willing to do something when he was set to gain from it. But if there was no personal gain, there was no way he was going to do it. And for us as Christians, this is something for us to think about. Now, this can apply in just about every area of life. But I want to think about the Christian life, and I want to think about our life in the church. I wonder how often we do things when there's something for us to gain out of it. We only do something because it's going to build our image. or or We're only going to do something because we want to be perceived by people in a certain way. If I do this, people are going to think highly of me. Or we're trying to impress someone. Okay, we, we can do things for all kinds of selfish motives and ends. Okay, this is something we're all prone to do as fallen humanity. But, you know, we are not to do things in the church and do things for others merely because there's something for us to gain from it. Yeah, okay, or, or we, we only do it because, hey, I don't want to be painted in a negative light. You know, or we only do it because we're trying to impress uh, a boy or girl, or we're trying to impress or, or influence the pastor, or whatever it may be. We can be motivated by all kinds of selfish rationale. And we need to understand that this is very anti-Jesus. Okay? Jesus is not like that. Uh, he did everything when he was on earth. Okay, Why? For the benefit of others. Okay, He did it because he loved the Father and he loves mankind and that needs to be our motivation okay the christian life is about serving for the benefit of others motivated by a love for god and a desire to glorify him okay so we need to guard against only doing things for selfish reasons like the first candidate and a lesson from candidate number two Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He was willing to fulfill the role, even though it cost him personally. He took the initiative to make this happen, and he was willing to take Ruth as his wife. And this reminds us of Jesus Christ. Okay, whether Boaz is a type or not, that, that's debated. And you know, I think we have to be a little bit cautious if we don't have a clear New Testament precedent. And yet there's certainly at least an illustration of Christ, as I've endeavored to bring out in this study, because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And thankfully, Jesus was not motivated by selfish gain like the first character, but rather he was willing to take on the role of the kinsman redeemer despite the great personal cost. He willingly took on the role just like Boaz, he took the initiative. Okay? It was him that took the initiative to save us, not the other way around. And okay, he takes us, the church, as his bride. Okay, so there's all of these connections. Jesus is the one that's greater than Boaz. And that's astonishing to ponder. That Jesus would take the initiative to redeem us. Think about what we're like as natural men. Dead, in trespasses, and sin. Okay, rebels against God. Sinners by nature, sinners by choice. And yet Jesus would come for us. And he would pay such a great price to purchase us, that being his own life, and that he has taken us as his bride. Okay, the church is the bride of Christ. That is astonishing grace. You know, we're completely and utterly unworthy. And in light of that, how can we do anything else but stand in awe of our Redeemer? How can we not love him? How can we not worship him? How can we not live for him? For Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Okay, Boaz is great, but he's nothing compared to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for this uh, wonderful story uh, that we find uh, in the Old Testament, and I thank you for uh, the lessons that it has to teach us, but we do thank you even more for what it points us to, and uh, that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we do uh, thank you so much um, for him, for our salvation. And uh, Lord, I do pray that uh, these simple truths uh, would really grab hold of our hearts and, uh, and increase um, our love for our Lord. Please be with us as we go our separate ways, we pray in Jesus' name.